to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. I'm Diane Hullett. Today, I've got a really special guest, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Today's guest is Amy Bloom. Amy is a celebrated and award-winning novelist and writer of short stories. She's also a professor of creative writing at Wesleyan University. I reached out to Amy because her new book is a very personal memoir about her husband's experience with Alzheimer's and ultimately an accompanied suicide. Amy agreed to speak with me about her book, In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss. And I think there's just such interesting things to be gained by hearing what she has to say, hearing what their experience was, and thinking about what matters most to you in these regards. So with this long introduction, let's go now to my conversation with Amy. Thanks for listening. So welcome, Amy. Hi. Hi. Really, really excited to talk to you today about your book, In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss. And I was actually looking at the title this morning and thinking, oh, I wonder why she put love, you know, first or loss first. And I thought, well, love came first. It does, as it often does, you know, I think that, you know, for everybody, regardless of uh, specifics, you know, there is love and then there is loss. And I'm not sure it goes any other way. I'm not sure it does either. They're sort of hand in hand, flip side of the same coin. Well, tell us about how this book came to be, because I'm sure some people listening are somewhat familiar with it and other people are saying, what's this book about? Sure. Um, in uh, 2019, my husband, who was then 66, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's. And um you know, I had noticed symptoms for a couple of years and then he had really just that spring started to notice that he just couldn't remember anything was how he experienced it. And um, we went to the neurologist and we got, as they say, their, their own version of a diagnosis, which is it's probably Alzheimer's because that's sort of the best they can do without an autopsy. Um, and so I found all my little notebooks in which I've written probably Alzheimer's, but I'm completely aware of the fact that at the time I absolutely knew it was Alzheimer's. Also, I'm a clinical social, social worker, so I had some familiarity and we had seen it up close in our family. And after about a weekend of processing and crying um, and staying close to home, Brian said to me, um, I am not here for the long goodbye. You know how I am. I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. And we're gonna have to find a way for me to end my life when, while I still have the capacity to consent to ending my life. And that was the beginning of the journey. And that was certainly the beginning of the book. I should say the other thing that he said to me, he was a fairly forceful person, um, was you need to write about this because he felt very much that people did not necessarily understand how limited the options were in the world and very much how limited they are in the United States about making choices about how you wish to end your life. And he had always felt strongly about this. He had been a, um, a volunteer with Planned Parenthood since he was 19 years old, um, walking women from their cars into the clinic 
in the face of, you know, screaming um, poster holders. And uh, as he said to me once, it's such a great combination of my interests by which he meant a certain aggressive streak and a strong belief in choice. Right, right. And, and that umbrella of choice for him really extended to all of life and feeling yeah. like he wanted choice up to the end. Absolutely. I was struck by, uh, you, you know, the way the book is written is really this incredible, it's almost like these vignettes. And, and I loved that about it. It was very readable. It's not sort of, uh, you know, one long narrative that you kind of slog through. It's like these, you know how the book is going to end. Right. You know, it's one of those stories. So it's like you begin with the ending and yet there's so much passion in those um, moments and the details of how, how you got there. And so, yeah, I was moved by how he kind of said, okay, you, Amy, are going to figure this out because at that point he kind of lost the capacity to do the kind of deep dive research it was going to take. Well, he had, although I should say in fairness to Brian, he never had it in the first place. <laughs> I mean, he was not a high tech guy. And um, at one point I write in the book, you know, that I sort of wished he had taken, I mean, he had taken sort of the lead as the CEO, but he wasn't going to be doing any of the research. And if he had, he wouldn't have been Brian. I mean, you know, Brian had his whole, our whole marriage had sort of said to me, oh, honey, you let me know. You right. Know, kind I'll of the visionary it. and the idea guy. But yeah. now let's have yeah. some people carry this out for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So so you began to look into things and I, I thought it was fascinating. You know, you said at one point the number of people who said to you shortly before and shortly after his death, who would say to you, why Switzerland? Why not Oregon? Why not Washington? Come on, Amy. And you looked into all of that. I did. And um if you have dementia, there is no state in the United States in which you can create an advanced directive and end your life as you wish, period, full stop. Wow. The fact is that even if you have a non-dementing disease, it's not a real easy process. And when you look at the laws, you see that the language is remarkably similar from state to state, suggesting you know, that there might have been <clears throat> some greater plans in mind for those laws and, um, and that their function is in fact to prevent people from defining and choosing their own death and to keep people from getting through that incredibly tiny uh, eye of the needle. And they have been very successful. The, the numbers of people who have been able to take advantage of these laws in 10 states is tiny over the course of a decade, tiny. And I'm pretty sure that that was the function of the laws so that you have to move to the state. You have to become a resident, first of all, which is not a one day process necessarily, depends on the state. Then you have to have two doctors who are prepared to um, attest that you have only six months to live, that you have a terminal disease. Which is therefore not dementia. Mm-hmm. And then you have to um, have two interviews with two more doctors and a written statement of your willingness and preparation for the end of your life. This is, by the way, while you are in the midst of your last six months of your life, which not everybody is in great shape during the last six months of a terminal illness. Uh, and then there's a two-week waiting period in most of the states, because why not? 
And then, um, then if you are lucky, you will find a doctor who will prescribe something fatal for you, which you then go to the pharmacy and get. And a physician, I believe, can assist you in, in taking the medication. I think probably not a family member. Right. You say quite clearly you can't help the person hold the glass. Or right. A physician so could. A physician could. A physician could. Uh, and there you have it. And I appreciate that so many of us, you know, really over the age of 50 and certainly over the age of 60, like this idea of the beautiful state in which you can die as you wish at some point 20 years hence. And I did feel like I needed to say to people, you know, it's, it's, it's like the right to eat or the right to good housing. We definitely talk about people having the right, but it does not mean we deliver the goods. Yes, I absolutely remember that line in the book. I was so struck by it. It's I'm I'm struck by it's like the laws in the U.S. as you said are like um, to keep people from passing through that needle, whereas it yeah. seems that the laws in Switzerland are more like um, it's almost more like let's make sure this is the right choice for you. So there's there's a lot of onus on the individual to keep choosing, but it's not quite as onerous if you've passed certain um, uh, criteria that they have. Oh, it's not nearly as onerous. I mean, the, the goal for a place like Dignitas, which is where we went, which is a nonprofit organization um, in Switzerland, is to help people have a painless, peaceful end of life. That's the purpose. And the laws in Switzerland are quite clear, which is that if you don't benefit from the death of somebody. It is not a crime to help them accomplish the end of their life. Amazing. And I believe it was maybe in 2020, it was maybe 3000 people they had helped. Yeah. I'm and probably, I imagine a considerable number more yep. now, but when you think about the fact that in a number of the state, the right to die states, as we like to call them, sort of euphemistically um, in the United States, it's often like, a hundred people over the course of 10 years. Wow. So really different numbers. Yeah. What, what do you think, what do you think went into Brian's sort of calculus that, that this assisted or accompanied suicide was the right option for him? Well, I mean, I think his first choice would have been that um, he would sort of turn it over to me and that at some point in a year or two years when it seemed to me that, you know, his capacity to engage in life had really been altered, that I would somehow make the decision and I would find the lethal dose and I would give it to him. <laughs> right, like almost like it might have been another six months or a year, like there would have been more diminished capacity, been. right. And that I would somehow make that decision and he would trust me to do that. And I pointed out to him that then I would probably go to jail and if not jail, certainly face a very unpleasant legal series of legal proceedings. And when I told him I would go to jail, he said very typically, he said, oh, honey, you do great in jail. You're such a leader. So resourceful. I love that. Yeah, you'll, you'll do great with that. It'll be wonderful for you. How, how did his clarity about this impact your experience? Well, um, I often said about Brian in other contexts that he was a hard man to stop. You know, he had been a defensive lineman when he played football in college and um, he liked contact. He 
as he said, one of his life principles was avoid a fight, but if there's gonna be a fight, throw the first punch. And I think that's exactly how he felt about Alzheimer's. Right, that right. He was like an incredible consistency. Yeah, incredible consistency yes. with how he saw things. It's his, it's, yes, he was himself from beginning to end. Wow. I was moved by your decision to write the book, really staying within the like intimacies of of day-to-day life, you know, a meal together, a walk, a drive, things that you did, Um, you know, rather than spending a lot of time on sort of the philosophical meanderings that could have come up. What, what, why did you decide to do that? I I think that's simply my nature. I am not a philosophy, philosophy sort of person. Um, I think people make all sorts of decisions and and often the best for them, even if that is not obvious to other people. And I have absolutely zero interest in judging or assessing that. I also have zero interest in laying out for people how they should go about their lives or their deaths. It's just not the kind of person I am. It's also not the kind of writer I am. I want to tell a story. Yeah. And I thought the story might be helpful to people. Right, right. So it's like you tell this this story of your experience, your experience as a couple, your experience as a family, and then let others do with that story what they will. A hundred percent. It's it's very much the way I feel actually about writing fiction as well. Although I prefer writing fiction, I hope to never write another memoir again. But um, yeah, that this is the story. I'm going to tell it, and you will do with it what you do with it. I also loved in the book, you, um, you have a lot of uh, parentheses, like a lot of parenthetical commentary by you. And some of those just cracked me up and some of them were really moving. I, I wanted to read one of them because it was just, it just stood out so much. It was right at the moment where you're with Dignitas in Switzerland and the, the women who are there kind of assisting or being sentinels, as you call them, the women say, you can take your time. And I, you, and And you write, and I roll my eyes because of course he will. He always does, I think, as if we're in some other room on some other occasion. And then I remember where I am and I'm ashamed of myself. Brian smiles slightly. What time's your plane, he says. And I have never felt so bad about being me in my entire life. Like, I just read that. I thought, oh God, so truthful, so brutal, right? In the way that a spouse can really hold up that mirror. Yeah, and- You know, he had said to me, "Um, I know what I'm doing. I'm not afraid. I'm ready. He said, but you know how I am. I'm going to dick around at the end and want to tell stories. And I'm like, okay. And and sure enough. Yeah. And you capture that, that sort of those moments of where he's telling the football stories, he's telling the history and you're kind of rolling your eyes going, oh, come on, can we get through this? But then when he stops, you think, oh, I want that moment back. Right. Yeah, I, th- I thought it really, um, those kinds of pieces of the book really touched me in terms of you're sharing such a specific moment, and yet it's such a universal experience of a spouse, you know, of a long marriage and a good marriage and a marriage that has its ups and downs. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know any marriages that don't, so. Right. Now that time has passed and the book has come out and more people are reading it, what kinds of questions do you find being raised around Um, this issue or your personal experience? Mostly I have not, I mean, occasionally I have encountered questions and the questions are usually in the form of, could you give me more information about Dignitas or 
do you think you could help us? Um, and I certainly do when I can. Um, but mostly it's the form of people just sharing their own experiences. Um, and really two categories of people, one are medical professionals, hospice nurses, palliative care physicians, a, a wide range of people. Um, a, a lot of Canadian physicians who uh, participate in the, um, I think physician assisted, physician assisted um, in dying. Medical, medically, medical, medical assistance in dying. Yeah. Right. Um, and then just people saying, here's what my husband went through. Here's what my wife went through. Here's what we went through. Here's what it was like for me taking care of my mother for 18 years. Right. I think in some ways, one of the most poignant parts of the book to me, I couldn't stop thinking about it after the first time I read it. Although it was really funny when I read the book the second, the second time, um, I remembered it completely different than it was. <laughs> So that was a funny part, but it was the part where you um, see an old friend, Rachel. Um, I think she was a therapist at one point and, and a, a dear friend and you go to her house and she kind of says, well, I'm hoping you can take me to Sweden with you. Right. And you say, well, it's not Sweden, it's Switzerland. And do your daughters know what's happening for you? And you, you begin to talk to her and you realize she's already past the point at which Dignitas would accept right. her. And, um, I, I kept thinking about that. And in my memory of it, it was like you closed the door to our house and said to yourself, you know, it's too late. Um, and then it was funny to go back and read the part again and go, wow, I really changed that in my mind as we do with books, right? We remember them slightly differently, but I was struck by the poignancy of that, that here was this dear friend and you could see, it was almost like seeing a parallel of where Brian could be in three months, six months, a year, two years. A hundred percent. And in fact, she was not just a friend. She had been our couples therapist. Yes. So we had seen her as somebody who could comfort and lead and instruct and help us. And it was especially moving to me because she did not realize that she had, of course, left behind that, that, that window of sort of cognitive function and discernment that would have made it possible because she had probably um, had Alzheimer's, I would say for the last five years. And again, like Brian, a very, very smart person can accommodate and maneuver and cover for a very long time, especially if you don't know them very well. And so we, we mostly knew her professionally. I mean, I did observe that Brian had a lot of trouble getting his appointments with her straight, but I also did observe that she seemed to have a lot of trouble getting the appointments straight. Right, right. And so there was, there was time that had gone by, kind of precious time in which to make this kind of choice. It is to me one of the primary reasons that you should go to a neurologist earlier rather than later if you see symptoms in yourself or symptoms in a loved one. It's not because they're gonna be able to treat it or fix it or end it, but it does give you a sense of what kind of a window you have for decision-making and planning. Even for, like, I was very moved that you almost immediately went out and bought beautiful stationery and Brian immediately wrote letters, you know, to the granddaughters. Right. And then you, you say, you know, a little while later when he got around to writing to his siblings, it, he had already slipped. Like there, there was a, a difference in the quality right. of that. Right. And, and, you know, I think that is the way it is with a lot of dementing diseases, which are, you are at one sort of location on the downside of the mountain and 
you adjust to that. And then one day you are a little bit further down the mountain right. and maybe there's a little back and forth for a little while. And then there you are at the new decline. Yep. As you said, I think there was even a moment in Switzerland where you were like, oh my gosh, are we here too early? Like right. Brian, Brian told some story and was very much right. himself. And you kind of have this heart clutching moment of like, ah, oh, we came too soon. Right. Wow. Well, is there anything else you'd add about your experience or what you feel like is helpful for people to know? I think that if you are a caregiver for somebody with, with almost any illness, but certainly with a dementing disease, you know, you certainly want to get as much help and support as you can. And I also encourage people to, um, especially women, to learn how to say to other people, this is the kind of help I need. That kind of help where you have Googled the illness and are now pontificating about it, not so much. That kind of help where you say, oh, if there's anything I can do, and in fact, you never do anything, not so much. You know, that learning how to say, here's what I could use. I could use you coming to my house at a quarter of 11 because I have an 11 o'clock appointment to get my hair cut, which I haven't done in eight months. And I'd like you to stay until two o'clock, which will involve making a sandwich between 12 and one. That's what I'd like you to do. Right. So, so you're saying both, if you're a caregiver, figure out how to ask specifically for help. And if you're the friend offering, see what you can offer that's specific. I think that's really important. I, I think caregivers are always, you know, the frogs in the hot water, right? And so we don't really realize how difficult it is, how exhausted we are until we're just pretty deep in it. I think that that's true. I mean, it's, it is at one point in the book, I say that it was surprising to me to realize that basically two thirds of all Alzheimer's patients are female. That was surprising. And I, you know, there are various medical theories about that. It was not surprising to me to learn that two thirds of the caregivers for people with Alzheimer's are female. And like nobody even bothers to come up with a theory about that because nobody needs a theory. Right. It's just a given. And, and although there's no um, sort of cure or ease for a dementia diagnosis, there are ways to ease the path of the caregiver. There are. Um, we could, for example, overhaul the American medical system. I think that would give. Start people- there. <laughs> I think that would be helpful. Um, you know, as well as you know, respite care. But I think uh-huh. yes, making it possible um, to approach this differently and in a sort of more micro rather than I mean macro in terms of what needs to be overhauled. But it's also the the quality of having enough time and enough energy to give people with with a dementing disease the kind of support they need and to give the caregivers the kind of support that they need instead of, for example, sticking a feeding tube inside somebody who's not capable of objecting because they don't eat their pudding quickly enough. Right. And the fact is that none of us want to think about that. And if you think that writing that directive in 2022 is going to serve you when it's 2025 and you are deep in your dementia, you have not taken a good look at how our healthcare system works. 
I think that's right. I think that's really right. And how to keep those those papers updated and current and conversations with your loved ones, if you have loved ones who are assisting you. Huge. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I found myself, it, it was so interesting to move through the book. And then when I cried was at the funeral, mm-hmm. you know, there's just something about that, um, kind of moving through the entire cycle and then coming to the grief with all those people who showed up. And you really talked about being kind of touched and amazed by the number of people who showed up. And there's this great line. Let me see if I can find it. Cause I just loved it. Here it is. You see your editor, Kate, mm-hmm. and you say, I'm ashamed to remember that at the time her husband died, I doubt I asked her more than twice about how she was doing. I know I did and said the stupid things that people do and say, and I am resolved not to mind what anyone says today, no matter what. And I thought that was just such a moment where you have this memory of, in hindsight, not quite being there the way you'd wished for your friend and editor, and then knowing that, oh boy, today people are going to come up and say the darndest things. (laughs) As indeed they do. And I think we all, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being angry. I don't think, I think that anger is for many people part of their grief. I also think that we all get to make choices about what you want to do with that anger and how long you want to live with it. And for some people, it's a very energizing kind of thing. For me, I found it wearing. Yes. Yes. And you found a way to, at Brian's direction, to channel everything that had happened in this experience into this incredible book. It's been very well received. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't read my reviews, but um, my kids do, <laughs> and they, everyone, they all feel very positive about it. Yeah, the book, the book got, I think, a lot of attention, partially because I don't think people write about this that much. And, I think you're absolutely right, or they write about it. Um, you know, there are really good books out there about, um, you know, the art of dying well is an excellent book, or being mortal is an excellent one, and wonder- yet. And yet this is such a direct experience. Right. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a legal expert. I'm not any kind of expert. The only things I wanted to write about was our love and our marriage and our story. Yeah. Well, I think that you've, you've given the world a gift with this book. And I thank you so much for your time today, Amy. It's really been a pleasure to hear you speak directly about what it was like to write the book and how it's being received in the world and what all that you learned. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the conversation. Thanks again. You've been listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. I'm Diane Hullett. And this episode was a conversation with Amy Bloom, author and recent author of In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss. You can find out more about Amy and all her many books at amybloom.com. And you can find out more about my work at bestlifebestdeath.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.